Welcome back to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are uh, staying with our deep dive into the apocalypse via media. And today we are talking about gaming. We're going to talk specifically about a game called DayZ. So why are we covering a video game on this channel? Um, it clearly fits our recent deep dive into the apocalypse. We've discussed other mediums such as literature, film, and television. We'd be remiss to ignore this increasingly influential media form of gaming. Also, I picked the game up during lockdown, and myself, I, I mean, I quickly became addicted, so I'm willing to admit that. In terms of games, there's no better case study. Daisy is not only one of the many games set in an apocalypse, but unlike all others, it forces the player to create their own quote-unquote narrative. Thus, it presents the opportunity to offer commentary on both conscious and subconscious popularity of consuming apocalyptic media, as well as we've been discussing, Further, by placing the consumer into the story in ways none of the other mediums can, it may offer insights into the way consumers think about their role in a post-apocalyptic world. Lastly, like all other forms of apocalyptic media, it also likely tells us something about our current social contexts, at least in the eyes of its targeted audience. Anything you want to chime in with before we get moving? Nope. Okay, so quickly, I am going to do an overview if you're not interested in like where the game comes from or like the basic mechanics of the game, you can skip ahead probably 10 to 12 minutes, we'll timestamp it at some point. Um, but I do feel like this is necessary to kind of set the stage for some of the questions I want to ask later um, that we will be filtering through a more academic lens. So anyway. To this point in gaming history, it's a one-of-a-kind hardcore open-world post-apocalyptic survival game that offers the player a relatively, at least to other games, uninhibited ability to play the game how they like. In terms of freedom, it's only real rivals or more building-based games like Minecraft or Roblox or to a lesser extent a game called Rust. Um, but outside of limitation, limitations due specifically to gaming mechanics we'll be talking about in interfaces, there are no rules um, or even instructions. It's completely up to the player to figure everything out. It's unforgiving, and new players die often. There's no stated goal to the game, aside from the assumed, like, just survive. There are no save points, and death is permanent. Every time the player dies, they have to start fresh as a new survivor with no trace of anything that they accomplished prior. Also important to note is that it's played online with as many as 60 to 100 players at a time pending servers. Importantly, the game supports proximity chat. So if you're within a certain um, distance of another player, you can talk to them over VoIP. And that's how you interact with players, which is the main thing we want to concentrate on um, today. This is why many that play it consider it to be a simulated social experiment about survival and human nature, though we are going to debate this a little bit later. So real quickly, the origins of the game, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I feel like the, maybe the gaming nerds that might be watching care. The game began as a player-made mod for the PC Milsom Arma 2. Its popularity forced Arma's developer, Bohemia Interactive, to recruit the modder of that, Dean Hall, and pursue a standalone version of the game back in 2012. While there are a wide range of debates about the game's development thereafter, from slow progress to buggy releases to changes in game engines and so on, there's no, there's no need to engage that here. As of the recording of this video, the game's in its best state it's ever been, and amazingly, for the gaming world, it's peak in popularity a decade after development began. So, in terms of like the background of this, because narrative matters in everything we've talked about from film to literature, the backstory of DayZ is pretty simplistic. There isn't really one, outside of some fan-based theories derived from its Arma origins, as well as some symbolism that you can find um, as you explore the world in the game. It's not entirely clear what led to the apocalypse in this, nor uh, or the origin of how the infected, i.e. the zombies, became so. This is intentional, again, because the game seeks to offer the player as free an experience as possible to choose their playstyle 
and any baggage from a story driven by developers could artificially inhibit this aim. In terms of the setting of this game, um, despite its lack of backstory, the original version of the game is quite clear that it takes place in a fictional post-Soviet Republic of Chernaris, though um, there are a host of other maps with their own unique geography and climate that have been added over the years. The open world of Chernaris is huge that you have to traverse. It's 225 square kilometers, so it's big. So interactions with other players, which is what we're focusing on, are kind of infrequent. Um, anything you want to add before we get into some of the mechanics? Nope. All right, let's keep moving. In terms of the gaming mechanics, the only reason we're going over them is A, again, I'm kind of a nerd about the game. B, um, I actually think it's important because these mechanics are what lead to the interactions that we want to focus on that people say make DayZ somewhat of a social experiment. So um, let's get moving. Um, in terms of survival, all players essentially wake up or spawn on a cold, somewhat desolate beach with only the clothes on their back, which are basically a t-shirt, some flimsy, flimsy pants, and some tennis shoes, and usually three items, a piece of fruit, a glow stick, and some bandages. They're immediately made privy to some icons on their screen that represent their thirst, their hunger, their temperature, their blood level, and their overall health. Given the only assumed goal of the game is to survive, it's up to the players how they keep the status of these icons um, good, or in the white, as we say. Um, so I'm going to talk about each of these icons, and that leads us to the interactions that I want to focus on. So the first thing um, that I want to focus on is how the player keeps their temperature up. This is the easiest aspect of survival to address. Players tend to spawn relatively near like abandoned towns or cities, and the first core element of survival is to loot these areas for resources among which are better clothes. From hats to jackets to shoes, each unique item has varied benefit in terms of insulation, carrying capacity for other items, and even protection against in injury. For example, like the highest sought after clothing items are ballistic vests. Um, additionally, players can get warm through spending time indoors and of course crafting fires through a number of varied methods pending locale. However, as with every aspect of the game, there are risks. First, failure to maintain adequate warmth guarantees the player will be stricken with sickness. This not only causes health reductions, but it's accompanied by noise, coughing and sneezing, which makes traveling undetected by either the zombies or other players very difficult. This could lead to those aforementioned interactions. Secondly, solving the issue of temperature via fires also gives away the player's position to others via like smoke plumes and light effects, especially at night. Thus, even the easiest aspect of survival in this social experiment, so to speak, comes with very real risks. The next thing that you have to focus on are your, is your thirst. You have to stay hydrated. It's a key part of survival in Chinaris. The large map is dotted with towns, and each one has one or two fresh clean water wells, depending on the size of the city. That said, this also acts as the first game mechanic that makes clear choke points that force player-to-player -player interaction. All players need water, and interactions, good, bad, and ugly, often take place at wells. There's also a number of freshwater options outside of town, such as lakes and ponds and streams and rivers. Um, but these sources nearly always lead to a bacterial sickness because you're just drinking out of like these, these, these water sources. To avoid this, you need purification tablets that can be found around the map. But not only are they rare, but they require a receptacle of some sort to put the water in first. These extra mecha mechanics encourage well use, at least early on. So again, making it difficult to get water anywhere else forces players to come together. There are also chances to find canned drinks, although it's really not advisable, at least in the vanilla version of the game, to rely on, on, on just finding canned drinks everywhere. The next mechanic that's important that could lead to player-to-player -player interaction is you have to keep your blood level up. Maintaining full, clean blood is key. While the player starts with perfect blood, it's inevitable that they're going to receive injuries throughout their journey. 
Every melee fight with a zombie may cause cuts, especially if the player has yet to acquire a strong melee weapon. And even after finding a firearm, just shooting them often causes more problems than it solves, but we'll talk more about this in a little bit. Melee fights with other uh, hostile players often cause cuts as well. Getting shot and surviving also causes cuts. Even sliding down a ladder without gloves may cause cuts. There are many more examples, but the point is clear. No player lasts very long uninjured. It's in the best interest of the player to bandage as quickly as the situation permits. For example, bandaging in the middle of a horde or during a gunfight is not advisable. The longer the wounds are open, the more blood the player loses. Again, often cho tough choices need to be made. The player starts with two bandages, but as one might imagine, these are used up quickly. The player can loot more in medical facilities, which also end up acting as a choke point. People looting these medical facilities for bandages and medicine for everything we've discussed to this point. Um, also, it's important. You can make your own bandages. You can cut um, cloth as long as you have a way to disinfect them. Um, you can also give yourself blood transfusions. All of these things are important, but they require items. And these items are only found in specific places, which again, act as important choke points, in this case, medical facilities. The last and most important thing that players need to survive is, of course, food. Hunger is one of the most difficult things to deal with, um, so I left it for last. Um, faster paced servers do exist where they make hunger not that important, but we're not concerned with that right now. That said, there is food everywhere. The player just needs to be patient. And again, this is meant to be part of the social experiment. How patient are you? Or are you just really in a hurry to get a gun and find somebody and shoot them? Like anything else, food can be looted out of abandoned houses and buildings and occasionally out of the pockets of infected killed by the player. The best foods are often canned, requiring the player to find some sort of tool to access them. Other smaller foods can be opened by hand, but don't offer as many calories. Anyway, looting on official servers is unlikely to be all the player will have to do, as food is intentionally rare, and of course highly sought after by other dozens of players all running around the map. Additionally, players can forage. There are fruit trees as well as wild mushrooms. This requires patience again. Not only does the player need to search places that drop these foods, but to get max calories, these items should be cooked. If not, they serve better for thirst. The player can also hunt or fish. This, of course, requires patience. Again, the player must find the right implements to do so, a gun for hunting, unless it's a chicken, um, or a knife to cut up the animal, water to wash one's hands after, as eating with like bloody hands gets you sick, um, as well as the other requirements to cook the meat, which eating raw meat also causes sickness. So again, the player is now going to need to make a fire, which leads to, of course, player-to-player -player interaction. Um, and of course, the hardest part is they have to find the animal. Livestock are intentionally limited and wild game are harder to track. So it's important that they're able to do that. Oftentimes other players are hunting the same animal. And again, we have player to player interaction. So it's kind of important in that way. The final way, however, a player can acquire food is perhaps the most important terms in terms of guiding our conversation towards notions of a social experiment, other players. The search for food and other rare items is possibly the most common reason players interact. In early game situations, this often can lead to positive interactions. If players are meeting on the coast, they're likely both fresh and in the same boat. They're just trying to get started and may decide to work together to find food. Additionally, the above mentioned choke points like wells and medical facilities can also serve as places um, to interact positively or as is often the case, beg for food. It's at this point that what starts as a basic request for food or trade or even role-playing interaction may lead to hours of companionship, comic relief, as there are a number of interesting characters on the internet, and in some cases, even real-life friendship between survivors as they now have to work together to traverse the map. 
Unfortunately, killing another player can also provide food in one of two ways. The most conventional is that the now dead player was possibly carrying food items, so in a sense, one could rationalize that this was just another form of hunting. Secondly, and most controversially, the now dead player can also be cut up like an animal and eaten. Usually this is reserved for extreme circumstances or in certain types of role play. There is, however, a mechanic to somewhat discourage this behavior. Consuming human meat often causes a disease called kuru, which, though it's not deadly, makes play more difficult. The surviving player will audibly laugh uncontrollably, um, not only compromising stealth, but pretty much guaranteeing no other player will trust a positive interaction with them. Kuru also causes ticks, jerking movements, most notably when the player tries to aim down the side of a gun, making combat difficult. Keep in mind that all these encounters do mean to simulate the first initial meeting one might have during a real apocalypse. You're trying to survive on limited resources. You see someone else doing the same. Do you walk up to them and talk? Do you hide? Do you hold them up and rob them if you found a weapon? Do you play the long game, pretending to be friendly only to stab them in the back way later down the line? Or do you attempt to eliminate your competition immediately and kill on sight? Obviously, there are a whole host of sub-possibilities as well, but the point is that no other game replicates the intensity of these interactions due, of course, not only to the limited resources, but the humanization of the person you're interacting with. In other words, this VoIP mechanic where you're actually getting to know someone by talking to them online, essentially humanize them. You're not just running around shooting silent characters as you would in like a first-person shooter like Call of Duty or Battlefield or something like that. Add in the time and energy required to merely survive, the investment the player has in their avatar or their character made it to the fact that one small error in judgment can erase hours, days, weeks, and in some cases even months of progress on a character in an instant, and the stakes in gaming turns are higher than any other entry I've personally experienced. There's an addendum to survival that's important, though. It's for this last reason that to this point, the unaddressed elephant in the room for survival finally rears its ugly head. Guns. We don't personally have anything against guns per se, but for our purposes in this specific inquiry, does DayZ actually reveal anything about social experiments or the apocalypse, their place at the forefront of the gaming experience perhaps muddies any assertions one might make. In simple terms, the ease of access, use, and even orientation of certain choke points presents players with near unending temptation to make gunplay their preferred form of interaction. One might rationalize that guns are also useful for hunting or protection from predators, there are bears and wolves around the map, or to even kill the infected. But it's rarely been made, but it's already been made fairly apparent to this point, survival can actually be achieved without them, with enough patience. Despite what some players might think, perhaps drawing on their experiences in other games, guns are quite plentiful in DayZ. That said, DayZ does make the whole gunplay experience much more difficult than run-of-the-mill first-person shooters. Most guns are not found with any bullets. Those have to be looted. Moreover, one must find the right type of bullet for each type of gun. Guns that require magazines add another, um, add another layer of looting um, to the game. Each bullet must be fed into the gun of the magazine. And of course, bullets are somewhat rare in and of themselves, especially the high-caliber ones. For all these reasons, it's not advisable for players to run around spraying and praying wherever they go. Gunfights take more thought than in just about any other game. Guns are loud. This is another reason we don't shoot all the time. Players are not advised to shoot zombies unless the situation is extremely dire. Not only does this cause every other zombie in the area to rush the player, but it gives away the player's position to all other players. And DayZ has undoubtedly one of the best sound mechanics in gaming, with shots being as heard as far as three kilometers away, while also revealing direction, type of gun, whether it was fired indoors or not, and so on. Firing a gun nearly guarantees an interaction, and since you fired a gun, it's most likely now going to be an unfriendly interaction when people find you. 
if guns are not needed and they can cause as many problems as they solve, why are they a core mechanic of the game? I've identified four main reasons. First, um, gaming mechanics. Guns acts as choke points. Among the earliest choke points not yet mentioned where players often meet are police stations. These contain low-tier guns and some moderate ballistic protection. While these are often visited by players in the very early stages without heavy investment, trips here still often end in murder as they compete for what amounts to very little, maybe a damaged pistol and a few rounds. And this begs the question, why? I'm going to put a pin in this one. A bit more explicable, however, is that as mentioned earlier, players are eventually oriented towards ever-increasing higher tension interactions. The longer a player survives and the further they travel, and perhaps even the friends they make along the way give the player a higher vested stake in survival. It just so happens that as they travel further and further inland, they stumble across areas with bigger and more impressive guns each step of the way. That's temptation. Ultimately, they arrive at the most famous place in Chinaris, Northwest Airfield, or some people like some of the other military bases, doesn't matter. These are large airfields with all types of military hardware for the taking. Combine all these elements and it's easy to see why almost no interactions between solos or squads end in campfires, jokes, and mutual aid by the time players reach a certain point. The second reason guns um, make an make a, a impact here is... It's the entertainment genre of gaming as a whole, and some most games are competitive, and an overwhelming majority involve combat of some type. In short, it's what's expected of both developers and players. The third reason we're talking about guns is their material context. While the game lacks a true backstory, merely setting it in the modern era presupposes that guns exist. And like a pre-apocalyptic world, they'll be the tools that are used for a handful of reasons. And the last thing we want to talk about in terms of guns are the ideal context. This is the most important, and this is the one I absolutely want Nick's commentary on. Ideal context in terms of guns in gaming. The predominantly privileged, mostly Western player base of this game comes from a culture of violence. Their privilege, as our countless bread and butter historical and sociological videos delineates, is predicated on power dynamics. We've talked about it in numerous episodes. Oppression, conflict, hierarchy, resistance, and so forth. This, of course, loosely follows what noted philosophers, most famously Hegel, called a dialectic. Moreover, to rationalize the dialectics uh, of violence, consumers are wholly socialized into this view of human history and social theory through narratives both fiction and non-fiction across time and space. Almost every popular story from the first written narratives of ancient societies like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Iliad to the modern blockbuster films like the Marvel movies all reinforce the dialectic and moreover celebrate it. As for non-fiction, history cur curricula, especially in the West, most often reads merely as a list of wars and conflicts, good, bad, or both. Cementing the idea, ideal context, is the fact that even for those privileged consumers, their everyday experiences at work, in school, or dealing with enforcing classes, watching the news, or even sitting in traffic are built upon the ideal of rationalized power dynamics, competition, and hierarchy preserved by, by coercion. So essentially, in this little part here, I'm arguing that gun violence is inevitable in the game because we come from a culture of violence. Um, what are your thoughts on that one, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how anyone could disagree with that. I mean, it's the narrative that it's just a continuation of the narrative of violence that exists in Western society, right? And like you said, the people that are buying and playing this game are from the privileged Western world. Our society is predicated on violence and now in modern times, gun violence, right? Endless, countless wars and so forth. So, of course... If there were no guns in the game, I think no one would play it, right? It would people would claim that it was too unrealistic, right? 
Absolutely. And that kind of goes with like part of the thesis here of why I might challenge the idea, at least in terms of gaming, that this is a kind of blank slate social experiment or that we can say anything about human nature or that we can even say anything about how one might react in the apocalypse because merely due to the socialization we're experiencing here. I guess I want to be careful there. I would argue the socialization reveals a lot about how we might act in an apocalypse were it to happen today. However, I would argue that it doesn't say anything about human nature because of the socialization that has already taken place. Any, what do you think of that? No, that's exactly what I was thinking, right? Like it might provide a clean experiment for like exactly what you said, how people might behave in an apocalypse if it happened right now, but it doesn't tell us anything about human nature. You know, what if the apocalypse happened 2000 years ago? What sure. would happen? We have no idea, right? It, we can't relate those two things. And I also think the ease in which like, you come across the guns, again, it's harder to get a gun in Daisy than just about any other gun, but you still can get them. And that's fine. Once mm -hmm. you get the gun and you get it going and stuff like the ease of that, I also, even in the apocalypse, I still have a hard time believing that like, if you saw somebody literally like getting water out of a well, your first reaction is to shoot them in the back of the head. I don't know. I, if, anything you want to add there? I think that's like the most controversial conversation, right? That people have when they're talking yeah. about the apocalypse all the time, right? Yeah. And there's okay. two sides. Everyone, right? Some people say, yeah, I would just kill everyone on site. Like, I'm not risking it. And other people are like, oh, no, it's much more co cooperative, mutual aid. Like, we would all, you know, help each other survive. Those right. are the two sides, right? And the truth is somewhere in the middle, I'm sure. So now we're going to officially switch gears. Sorry for the long explanation of the game. Like I said, I'm kind of a nerd on it. But regardless, we're moving now more towards, like, the conversational part of this. Now that we know what the game is about, roughly, I went through it as quickly as I could. I want to get back to why this channel, a channel that's not a gaming channel, um, a channel that's mostly a historical, sociological, and to a lesser extent, like philosophical channel, why are we covering a video game? So this video game in particular, we've talked about why we think it is kind of important to discuss within the apocalyptic media, but I want to present some very important questions here. I think I have, I don't know, about four of them, or no, three of them with some like little sub subtopics that I want my sociologist here, Nick, to be discussing. Number one. Does this video game, Daisy, actually present an opportunity to offer commentary on both conscious and subconscious popularity of consuming apocalyptic media? Okay. Yes. First and foremost, yes, yes, it clearly does. The fact that it exists clearly does. There's a number of mm -hmm. post-apocalyptic video games out there, but the fact that this one is so unique in the way it does things, yes. But now these subcategories are important. A, and this comes to us from previous episodes that we've um, um, done some research on and some sources. First one is Susan Sontag, and she argues some of this in the imagination of disaster. No, it's not the imagination of disaster. Is it the imagination of disaster? Mm -hmm. I think it is. Anyway, she says there's a couple of reasons why we like to consume apocalyptic or disaster-based um, media. The first one is, does Daisy normalize the unbearable? What are your thoughts? I think, it, honestly, any apocalyptic media does fulfill this function. Like, it might do so to, you know, one extent or another. But, yeah, I mean, think about, it, you know, people that play hours and hours and hours. And, by the way, like, I'm guilty of this, too, right? I've played yeah. DayZ for years, right? People that play this for hours and hours and hours and hours, right? It definitely normalizes these th these circumstances for us right now am i going to go out and like shoot someone in the back of the head or you know punch someone that i think is infected with covid or like obviously not right like that's not real life <laughs> right but we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't think that it, it at least makes that more 
present in our minds, right? By living in this world for hours on end, I think. Does it also, in terms of normalization of the unbearable, does it also make whatever we might find about current society, i.e. the unbearable parts of our current society, does it normalize that? Things like power dynamics and, yeah? Oh, for sure, yeah. And I think it, I think this is actually a a two-sided coin, right? It definitely normalizes power dynamics in the extent of like might makes right, et cetera. But I actually think it functions to deconstruct power dynamics a bit because any apocalyptic narrative, right? This apocalyptic fantasy overturns the power dynamics, right? The government no longer exists and the police force and military, they no longer exist, right? So the power dynamics are really there for recreating. And so it's this fantasy of like, I can be the most powerful in this power vacuum that has been created by the apocalypse, you know? All right. Next part of uh, opportunity on commentary regarding the apocalypse. We're sticking with Susan Sontag here. She argues that our consumption of this media simplifies morality. Thoughts? Yeah, 100%. Especially like we've talked about this extensively, talking about Day Z. And even though, like you said, it has the VoIP feature where you can talk and like humanize the other person much more than like a Call of Duty or a Battlefield or something like that. It's still like this is just a pixels on a screen, right? Like, yeah, there's another person sitting on the other side of the, the screen somewhere in the, you know, across the country or across the world. But I mean, we're all just pixels here. So yeah, it definitely simplifies morality. It's not nearly as complex as if we were actually existing in the post-apocalyptic world where all of our decisions, right, drinking from the well, you know, killing this deer so that I can have food, every single decision would have catastrophic consequences for our own survival and for other human beings' survival. In the game, it's just a game, right? No matter how much, how great it is, but it's still a game. It is by far the best game at humanizing mm-hmm. like everyone around you by far, but it's still just a game. So even if it is right. the best game at humanizing your like your competition, so to speak, it's still just a game. So yeah. and even though we might get like irate when we get killed or die or whatever, right? We've lost, like you said, minutes or hours or days or months or whatever of gameplay. Like it's still just a game and you still just start over on the beach and like rebuild your thing, right? Or if you're in a squad, right, you run back to the base and you re-gear up and you're fine, right? I've always thought it'd be interesting if you had to buy the game again every time you got <laughs> yes, of how yeah. many people would like, how many I people would buy it Reddit. first off yeah. and how many people would buy it just over and over and over again. Yeah, I saw it on Reddit that every time you die, you actually have to buy a new copy of the game. Like that mm. was your life. That would be amazing. That'd be amazing. Right? Make KOS even more like, oh my God, you spawn in and, 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 and you spawn in front of a guy with a gun and you get, instantly get shot. Oh yeah, plus like whoever had the sniper yeah, rifle in the mountains on the coast would just be destroying people's lives. Oh my gosh. Anyway, but no, that is, that's, that's very interesting. And again, we want to be clear if you are like a Daisy van and somehow found your way here because of the title of this, we understand that different servers have different nuances and they can actually like play with like a whole bunch of different things to like change some of these questions. We're just looking at the core elements of the game. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, C, the next question I want to ask regarding um, commentary on um, apocalyptic media and DayZ. Does DayZ present an opportunity to create utopia? Mm-hmm. This comes to us from, um, I actually forget the professor's first name of, of Portuguese literature, but her last name was Lisboa. Um, is right. it Lynn manuel No. Something anyway, like that, yeah. Yeah, Lisboa, anyway. We'll, we'll link it in the description for sure. She argues essentially that some of our consumption of this media presents an opportunity to create a quote-unquote utopia. Does DayZ present that opportunity for us? It presents the opportunity. Whether it plays out like that ever doesn't seem likely, right? It's more often a dystopia. 
I'm, you know, obviously that we know that there are clans out there that create, you know, food pantries and like all this kind of stuff that would create in, you know, some version of a utopia. But I think the overarching most common way that this plays out is dystopic, probably. And you can experiment, just like I said. He, I mean, he brings up the food pantry in there. There'll be a clip, in theory, of me uh, playing where I created a food pantry and a cult comes up and tries to talk me into, like, donating my food to the cult and going through some ritual or things along those lines. But, like, in your own mind, while you're going through this, is this utopic? Well, for some of us, yeah, maybe if we are a little bit fed up with everything and we want a fresh, clean slate, and we, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is utopic. Well, we will assist as well. Confessor, please. I've I've sinned. I need to be okay. Be baptized. All right, we're gonna. Uh, all right, and you're 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 sure these are you're sure these are rubber? Because this is this is this is you getting shot. I'm not afraid friend. to die. I will. Reckon will bless me in the afterlife. All right. Well, I have I have I'm gonna do this really quick. And then I'm gonna put one of my known rubber slugs in it. And I've been baptized. Praise him. Reckon, please bless me. Praise be Reckon. Still got a strong pulse. See? Busted slugs, they do good work. <coughs> I saw I saw him confess it. Oh, I know, my friend. I know. So, yeah, that's about it. Or maybe that utopia only comes through dystopia, as, as we learned when we were going through um, Lisboa's arguments. Okay. Mm -hmm. The next part regarding um, consuming apocalyptic media, uh, media and DayZ, does DayZ work through historical trauma or negotiate or help us negotiate our way around human horror? This comes to us from the, um, from the uh, article written by Hominich. I don't know. I don't, uh, since it doesn't have very much of a narrative, like backstory, it's hard to comment on this one, right? It's not as if like we talked about before, Nazi zombies and like all this kind of stuff. Right. Since we don't know the cause and we don't know, there's no like story surrounding the game. This one I'm not sure about. Yeah, I mean that post-Soviet thing, there's probably some commentary yeah. that these are post-Soviet states. There's also some little things that you can find in the gameplay. Like again, you can get gassed out or bombed. There's gas explosions that take place. Maybe something regarding... Um, Chemical warfare could be said mm -hmm. there, um, but yeah, I do. Maybe perhaps the, the 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 lack of backstory is something that we can kind of leave behind when we go through this critique or this um, analysis of Daisy and its um, situation within apocalyptic media. All right, next question: Does Daisy offer insights into the way consumers think about their role in a post-apocalyptic world? If so, what are they? So essentially, like, let's say we are consuming this because maybe we are secretly fantasizing about the end of the world and we want a clean mm -hmm. slate. Does Daisy offer insights into the way we think about what our role would be in a post-apocalyptic world? Probably yeah. because like your first role is just survival of yourself, right? Which I think is probably the reality for most people. Okay. If the apocalypse actually happened, right? Like yourself and your family. 
from then on though, like once you're comfortable, right, quote unquote comfortable in the game, you have to decide what you're going to do, right? So like you created the food pantry and like, you know, you might form a squad with other people and, you know, build a base and you're going to dominate this part of the map or you might, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. right? So you have to decide what you're going to do after that. I don't know if it's too connected to reality, right? Like in reality, am I going to like, survive and get comfortable and build a base and then go to the Northwest airfield and just get into trouble. Like, no, obviously I'm not going to do that. Right. But like in the game you will, because it's a game. So I don't know. I think it does play into like, it's a way to play out the apocalyptic fantasy mm. that is unique and different compared to like literature and film, right? Literature and film, you're being led you know, down the path and it's definitely entertaining. It definitely takes your mind off, you know, being a consumer in real life and like living in this capitalistic, you know, postmodern society. But DayZ is a, a version where you get to play it out on your, you're fully in control of the narrative, right? Like you said, there is no narrative. There's no backstory. There's nothing. It's purely open world and you get to decide on your own what that story is going to be, right? The story you're going to create, which actually led me to is something I hadn't thought of until right this second. Many people, there's an engine that you can download on the game, right? You can download the game engine and you can, it's like a cinematic type thing. So you can make short films in DayZ and like camera angles and all this stuff. So many people have actually made DayZ like films using the game to make narratives. Which so many of is like a perfect example of blending the two together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the third or fourth most watched game on, on Twitch right now, which is, which is again, crazy for like a 10 year old game, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, yep. But because these content creators are doing so many amazing things with these stories that they're making up as they traverse this map. Um, the other thing you got me thinking about, though, I haven't brought it up intentionally because I don't believe in my personal opinion. I hate bases. I don't believe in bases in the game, whatever. I think it slows down gameplay and makes it lame. But but regarding consumption, you did get me thinking with all these players that are now liking to build bases and hoard as many resources. That's really the point of the base is to mm -hmm. hoard as many resources. It's not to keep you safe. You can stay safe in an abandoned apartment building. It's to hoard as many of the resources of which there are limited on the map in your base, which is protected by your walls or whatever else you've built. Um, that says something about our consumptive habits as well, right? Oh, 100%, right. And then it leads to base raiding, right? So you want, you find a base yeah. and then you want to get the, yeah. the tools necessary to raid that base so that you can loot like their stuff, right? So yeah, definitely, I think, you know, market competition in some strange way in the post-apocalyptic world here. Yeah, you're right. Hoarding and so forth. It's now, would that happen in a real life apocalyptic scenario? Probably, you know, to some extent. Right. Well, and that's why I brought up like it's Walking Dead-esque, right? Where mm -hmm. like I remember at some point, I didn't watch the whole thing through, but I remember at some point there's like three or four different cities, quote unquote, that are guarded, that are like competing for resources and where they're allowed mm -hmm. to loot and where they're not. And it actually often plays that out on a DayZ server um, yeah. quite often. So, okay. Last little bit here. Does Daisy tell us something about current social context, at least in the eyes of its specific audience? So, A, does Daisy tell us something about critiquing the existing social order? This question comes to us from um, Hominich as well. Um, I feel like we've danced around it a little bit with some of the other answers in some of these questions, but I'm, maybe we can get down a little bit more to the nitty gritty. Does Daisy tell us something that critiques the existing social order for the player? Like, are they playing this to critique the existing social order? I should be clear. I don't know. I feel like this one's kind of a stretch. Like, again, because there's no backstory. If this was like a post-capitalist, like post-climate disaster or something, right? But like, we get nothing other than some people are infected and have become zombies. That's really all we know. 
So this one's a stretch. Now, are the people that play it? Yes. It's possible that their gameplay could critique the social yes. order depending on the decisions they make, but that's unique and open for interpretation for every individual player. So like, interestingly, this game gives that power to the player itself, depending on how they decide to play. So, and, I, and I'm going to get on my soapbox for a little bit, but that player that um, just walks up to the person that was just spawned in, fresh born on the beach, and is just getting a drink at the well, clearly has nothing on their body, and the person still walks up and shoots him in the head. This is a power play. And I mm-hmm. do sometimes, and probably incorrectly, I'm willing to admit this, read into this as this is somebody that is wildly dissatisfied with something in life, and they're using this game as some sort of, I don't know, therapeutic release thoughts. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I fully agree. I think that, that, I mean, I think anyone that plays the game probably is using it to some extent as like kind of a therapeutic release, right? Like that's why we play video games in the first place. Right. So, but yeah, I mean, the getting into like the psychoanalytic motivations of someone that execute someone at the well that something's going on i don't know if i'm qualified to comment on what it is yeah. or whether there's like a monolithic archetype of person that does that right that's probably not i use that example specifically because in other games as much as i fault them for their limits in gameplay like in a call of duty situation it's equal both players are holding a weapon they got to choose that weapon the whole point of the game is to shoot the other guy it's it's already within the gaming mechanic but in this situation a person clearly with no sort of weapon, no sort of like loot or food that you can steal or anything along those lines, and they're still executed. There is something kind of um, um, going on behind the scenes there. At least I, I I think that. I mean, some would say, hey, it's just a video game and I'm just having fun and I just want to shoot everything. But I don't know. I don't know how fun, I guess, and this is where I guess my gameplay is, is becoming critical. I don't know how fun it is just to, you know, em- em- empty a magazine into, into somebody drinking water. But, you know, I guess that's different for everybody. All right. Second part of this, and this is our most recent set of episodes on Ruin and what that is related to, not just, I guess, the apocalypse. We, we talked about Detroit and everything along those lines, but like the end of eras. Does Daisy act as Ruin pornography? Because if you traverse the map, and I'm sure there's going to be some footage that we are speaking over, playing in the background, there's a whole bunch of like blown out buildings, there's destruction, there's zombies running everywhere. I mean, are we... Is this attractive to us in some sort of way um, as ruined pornography? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a spectacle of destruction, right? The apocalyptic spectacle is definitely present here, right? There's broken down cars everywhere. And yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know if it has that much of a the ruined pornography aspect because it's not real life, right? Like seeing the buildings in Detroit or the Coliseum in Rome, or like we talked about in previous episodes, right? London after World War II, right? Like all of these things yeah. have like real history for us, for okay. humanity. So that's why they're significant. Like seeing some random building, yeah. building blown up in Chinaris and DayZ, like doesn't really mean much, but it does symbolize destruction. It does symbolize the fact that we are in a post-apocalyptic world right that like this is a new era all bets are off there's no norms right this is that's where we are that's what it symbolizes in the game for sure okay those are the questions that i identified from our prior episodes in our research into the apocalypse that i think would have been most applicable to day z do you think we missed one or two have you thought of anything while we've been talking i don't know like the 
We want to think that it gives us insight into human behavior, right? That like the way that people behave in the game tells us something. And by we, I mean like you and I, right? The way that the people play in the game tells us something about human nature or human behavior or how people would behave if a real apocalypse would break out. And many people argue, right, that this exists in the game. I don't think that's true, right? I think both of us probably agree that it, for many reasons, that it doesn't really provide a real experiment because... The consequences aren't real. Like you said, it lends itself to gun violence because there's that's just the way the game is structured. Not that that wouldn't also exist in real life, but how much would someone get executed at a well in real life? Like, I don't know the answer to that, but it's probably not as often as it would in Daisy, right? Like, it's all the time, right? How much would you actually kill someone on site in real life? I well, don't know the like answer to that, but probably, that. yeah, probably mm-hmm. not as much as in Daisy. Right, like because just the consequences aren't real. Fair enough. Uh, we'll leave it in the comments now. What do you all think? Hopefully, we attracted maybe one or two players that have actually played the game. Even if you haven't played the game, I tried to give the best overview as I could. What are your thoughts? Do you think, well, games in general, specifically this game, is a simulated social experiment? We know gamification is very important in terms of now learning a little bit more about human nature. It's being used in universities now, all types of things, as a learning mechanism, um, as a pedagogical approach. Um, I'll repeat the question um, in the comments. Is DayZ a a simulated social experiment, or does it tell us anything about our consumption regarding apocalyptic media? That's all I have. I'm going to let Nick take us out. Thanks for watching. If you found that entertaining, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. I am Nick. I'm Jared. Later.